My name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to The Bible in a Year, The Story Podcast, where we encounter a living God that is calling us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. We will read the Bible out loud and explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story today. This is day 23, and we're reading from the NIV version of the Bible, Genesis 41 and 42, Job 33 and 34, and Proverbs 4, verse 1 through 9. Genesis 41. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile. When out of the river, there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy, full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream." In the morning, his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dream, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was impaled. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answers he desires. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, In my dream I was standing on the bank of the Nile, when out of the river there came up seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed among the reeds. After then seven other cows came up, scrawny and very ugly and lean. I have never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. The lean, ugly cows ate up the seven fat cows that came up first. But even after they eat them, no one could tell that they had done so. They looked just as ugly as before. Then I woke up. In my dream, I saw seven heads of grain, full and good, growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads sprouted, withered and thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads. I told this to the magician, but none of them could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance of in Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered, because the famine that follows it will be so severe. 
The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to keep in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man? One in whom is the spirit of God. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command. And people shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am a Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all of Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zephanath-Panah and gave him Aseneth, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went through the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain, like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping record because it was beyond measure. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my troubles and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe everywhere. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brother arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where did you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. 
No, my lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them, you have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, your servants were 12 brothers, the son of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father and one is no more. Joseph said to them, It is just as I told you. You are spies, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your younger brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in a prison, so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison, while the rest of you go and take grain back to your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me, so that your word may be verified that you may not die. This is this they proceeded to do. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how he distressed how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an account for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them, since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to weep, but then came back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. Joseph gave orders to fill the bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack, and to give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank, and they turned to each other, trembling, and said, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them. They said, The man who is Lord over the land spoke harshly to us and treated us as though we were spying on the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We are not spies. We were twelve brothers, sons of one father. One is no more, and the youngest is now with our father in Canaan. Then the man who is Lord over the land said to us, This is how I will know whether you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me and take food to your starving households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me so I will know that you are not spies but honest men. Then I will give your brother back to you, and you can trade in the land. As they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his pouch of silver. When they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Their father Jacob said to them, You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you want to take Benjamin? Everything is against me. Then Reuben said to his father, You may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Entrust him to my care, and I will bring him back. But Jacob said, My son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. Job 33 but now, Job, listen to my words. Pay attention to everything I say. I am about to open my mouth. My words are on the tip of my tongue. My words come from an upright heart. My lips sincerely speak what I know. The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me then, if you can. Stand up and argue your case before me. I am the same as you in God's sight. I, too, am a piece of clay. No fear of me should alarm you, nor should my hand be heavy on you. But you have said in my hearing, I heard the very words, I am pure, I have done no wrong, I am clean and free from sin. Yet God has found fault with me. He considers me his enemy. 
He fastens my feet in shackles. He keeps close watch on all my paths. But I tell you, in this you are not right, for God is greater than any mortal. Why do you complain to him that he responds to no one's words? For God does speak, now one way, now another, though no one perceives it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on people as as they slumber in their beds, he may speak in their ears and to terrify them with warnings to turn them from wrongdoing and keep them from pride, to preserve them from the pit their lives from perishing by the sword. Or someone may be chastened on a bed of pain with constant distress in their bones so that their bodies finds food repulsive and their soul loathes the choicest meal. Their flesh wastes away to nothing and their bones once hidden now stick out. They draw near to the pit and their life to the past messengers of death. Yet, if there is an angel at their side, a messenger, one out of the thousand sent to them how to be upright, and he is gracious to that person and says to God, spare them from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom for them. Let their flesh be renewed like a child. Let them be restored as in the days of their youth. Then that person can pray to God and find favor with him. They will see God's face and shout for joy. He will restore them to full well-being. And they will go to others and say, I have sinned. I have perverted what is right, but I did not get what I deserve. God has delivered me from going down to the pit, and I shall live to enjoy the light of life. God does all these things to a person twice, even three times, to turn them back from the pit, that the light of life may shine on them. Pay attention, Job, and listen to me. Be silent, and I will speak. If you have anything to say, answer me. Speak up, for I want to vindicate you. But if not, then listen to me. Be silent, and I will teach you wisdom. Then Eleu said, Hear my words, you wise men. Listen to me, you men of learning, for the, ye- for the ear tests words as the tongue tests food. Let us discern for ourselves what is right. Let us learn together what is good. Job says, I am innocent, but God denies me justice. Although I am right, I am considered a liar. Although I am guiltless, his arrow inflicts an incurable wound. Is there anyone like Job? who drinks scorn like water. He keeps company with evildoers. He associates with the wicked. For he says there is no profit in trying to please God. So listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do evil, from the Almighty to do wrong. He repays everyone for what they have done. He brings on them what their conduct deserves. It is unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. Who appointed him over the earth? Who put him in charge of the whole world? If it were his intent and he withdrew his spirit and breath, all humanity would perish together and mankind would return to the dust. If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to what I say. Can someone who hates justice govern? Will you condemn the just and mighty one? Is he not the one who says to kings, you are worthless, and to nobles, you are wicked, who shows no partiality to princes and does not favor the rich over the poor, for they are the work of his hands? They die in an instant in the middle of the night. The people are shaken and they pass away. The mighty are removed without human hand. His eyes are on the ways of mortals. He sees their every step. There is no deep shadow, no utter darkness where evildoers can hide. God has no need to examine people further that they should come before him for judgment. Without inquiry, he shatters the mighty and sups up others in their place. Because he takes note of their deeds, he overthrows them in the night and they are crushed. He punishes them for their wickedness where everyone can see them because they turned from following him and had no regard for anyone of his ways. They caused the cry of the poor to come before him so that he heard the cry of the needy. But if he remains silent, who can condemn him? If he hides his face, who can see him? Yet he is over individual and nation alike to keep the godless from ruling, from laying snares for the people. 
Suppose someone says to God, I am guilty, but will offend no more. Teach me what I can see if I have done wrong. I will not do so again. Should God then reward you on your terms when you refuse to repent? You must decide, not I. So tell me what you know. Men of understanding declare, wise men who hear me say to me, Job speaks without knowledge. His words lack insight. Oh, that Job might be tested to the utmost for answering like a wicked man. To his sin, he adds rebellion. Scornfully, he claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. Proverbs 4, 1. Listen, my sons, to a father's instructions. Pay attention and gain understanding. I give you sound learning, so do not forsake my teaching. For I too was a son to my father, still tender and cherished by my mother. Then he taught me and he said to me, Take hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commands and you will live. Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget my words or turn away from them. Do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Though it costs all you have, get understanding. Cherish her and she will exalt you. Embrace her and she will honor you. She will give you a garland to grace your head and present you with a glorious crown. All right, so this is our last week in Genesis. Woohoo! Crazy. It's it's uh, been a while. It's one of my favorite books, though. We only have five more days before Exodus starts next week. So let's start with this. Rabbi David Foreman, as described by Marty Solomon, and Brett Billing offers a Jewish perspective on how the story we read today offers a reversal of Joseph's original exile by pointing to the fact that Joseph told his dad and brothers about his dream, and his father rebuked him and it enraged his brothers. Then his father sent him out into the field with his coat of branded favoritism, and the brothers threw him into a pit, which is often similar to the Hebrew word for exile, um, death, or sheol. Then in this story, Joseph is in a pit again, so he starts from the place of descent where he was left in the previous story. Then he is sent for, instead of sent out, um, by a new father-like figure, Pharaoh, who gives him new clothes and has him interpret his dreams, um, believes him, and restores, uh, restores or even elevates him to a position of favor and influence. It's like a mini or pseudo redemption story. But Joseph is not with his family. Yet he remains righteous to God while adapting and thriving and work and life of the culture of that time. I can't help but see two different types of exile being illustrated, but both brought on by a type of naivety or youthfulness, perhaps even some ego. The first exile was by the family, by his family, where the father sent him out, his brother stripped him of his robe, I kind of see it as status, and he was put into a pit out of lust. His brothers were envious of his position with their father and wanted it for themselves, or at least for Joseph not to have it. The second exile is more of a corporate one I'm seeing between like an employer and employee, although it's more like master and slave. If you've been, if you've ever been in a harassment or workplace bully situation, you'll probably relate to this as I do. In the second story of exile, Joseph went into the house of Potiphar, the place he worked. Joseph left his cloak, which is like a form of identity or the thing that identifies him. And then he puts it into a Put, and then he's put into a pit out of lust, this time from Potiphar's wife, who wanted him for either pleasure or to exert her power over him. I don't know. Two exiles, two types of exile. One is forced onto him and the other he elected voluntarily for the alternative was unacceptable. 
I feel like many of us might be able to relate to a time where we were or felt stripped of our status or our role taken from us. And when we left a part of our identity out of necessity or self-preservation in a job or family situation, these both have felt like a form of exile. But now in this story, the pseudo-redemption from an unlikely source, it's a real story of status and identity restoration into a new context, but it's not a real redemption story of identity and status into his family, the chosen family of God, to be a blessing, to bring the promised one. We'll have to put a pin in this unfinished business for now, but I think it's an interesting thing to reflect on, right? In this story, it's almost like Joseph is offered a more comfortable exile, but notice the authors have made no mention of Joseph trying to send word home or run back to his father. And we know his father and perhaps his brothers too all think he's dead, so they wouldn't be looking for him. Is it hurt or shame that keeps Joseph away? That keeps him from reaching out? I really don't know. But the author makes it clear that he's still in a relationship with God, even in his alienation and dislocation state from his family. In this story, Pharaoh renames Joseph and gives him a viceroy-like position and gives him a wife, an Egyptian daughter of a priest on. Her name is Asenath. Here's what's interesting. Professor Eric Kroll wrote a book, Asenath of Egypt, The Composition of a Jewish Narrative, Society of Biblical Literature in 2020, and the translation commentary of Joseph and Asenath and Outside the Bible, Ancient Jewish Writings Related to Scripture. She also wrote an article for Torah.com linked below, which gives both a Graken and a Jewish interpretation for who Asenath was. The problem that both of these sources see and are trying to solve is how Joseph and Asenath's two sons, um, Manasseh and Ephraim, will grow up to be tribes of Israel if she had not converted to Joseph's God and continued to worship Egyptian gods. A number of things are possible. Both the Greek and Jewish interpretive story are interesting to read, but the scriptures themselves do not give us this problem or a resolution. We do know that his sons receive a double portion of inheritance and become a part of the story. And the next part of this story, famine that we read about today, and Joseph's brothers come to Egypt. They don't recognize Joseph, and also, if they thought he was dead, they wouldn't even have the possibility in the back of their minds that it could be, right? We sense Joseph's distrust and probably some projection of hurt, and he wants his younger brother Benjamin, but he wasn't with the brothers, so Joseph gives them provision and sends them back for Benjamin. To ensure their return, Joseph keeps Simeon. Notice how the authors didn't say that Simeon fought the bonds, which is in contrast to his mass murder, if you remember, with Levi back in Shechem um, as sort of like a vengeance, a vengeance, revenge for um, Dinah. Scholars and interpreters speculate that Simeon was selected because he is the second son of Jacob and Reuben, the first son, is spared because Reuben had tried to spare Joseph. Another possibility scholars give is that Simeon was the one who said, let's slay him since the Bible doesn't say which brother said it, or he wants to separate Simeon and Levi who engaged in the mass murder in the previous story. Interesting things to consider, but I don't know the reasons why. The brothers returned to Jacob, also named Israel, who God named, right? But the author of Genesis uses both names. Not sure why these are used in different places at different times. There's probably a reason. I just don't know what it is. And in the story, we see that Reuben offers his sons, I guess as collateral of some sort, in exchange for taking Benjamin with them to Joseph in Israel because they need provisions to weather the famine. 
note, Joseph's dreams came true. But this story ends with Jacob crying out that losing his younger son would be like exile, which in Hebrew, again, is like um, a type of death um, and like going into a pit. He doesn't seem persuaded yet. We'll have to wait to see what happens next in this story. And we finish off with Job, and we continue to be somewhat mystified about who the fourth, perhaps more mysterious friend of Job's is, named Elayu. Really, he's challenging both Job and his three friends' views of themselves in God's immutable character and wisdom. Elayu is focused on Job's understandable, but perhaps a bit arrogant and sinful reaction to the undeserved suffering, which was illustrated by Job's statement, which seems to have taken a kind of pride or refuge in questioning the justice of God and stressing his do-gooderness. I don't know about you, but I kind of hear the prodigal story again, but the older righteous brother who doesn't want to, when the father is trying to take back the prodigal younger son, who was wayward and gone astray and wanted to come home. And the older brother's like, no, I'm not coming to the party. This is unacceptable. It's kind of like he can't quite grasp things not working in a specific way. Um, Not that I cannot relate to Job. Sometimes pushing or projecting is masking the fear and doubt underneath. Dr. Brene Brown describes blame as simply the discharging of pain and fear. It's a way to discharge our anger. While it's relatable, it's also convicting and insightful to see it for what it is and name it and ourselves and gently help others to see it in order to address what's really going on underneath. One other insight Dr. Brene Brown gives in her book is the distinction and comparison between blame and shame. While blame is concerned with what I did or what that someone else did, right, that's wrong or bad, shame is believing that I am or that someone else is ontologically good or bad. I've been convicted by authors like Dr. Kristen Neff, who studied moral development at UC Berkeley, to really consider if and how I communicate to myself about blame and shame. And as a mother and a professor, I try to think and act in a way that helps my students, my children, to take responsibility and make course corrections for behavior without having them think about their identity or status as shifting to a more or less good or bad person. Because their identity and status has already been given to me, to them, to us, right? That's never in question. It's been given to us by God. Refer back to Genesis 1 and 2. We are all on a learning course. Think of all the stories we've been reading about the messy growth process and how it takes a growth-oriented mindset. A growth-oriented mindset believes that through hard work, which is like experimentation, input from others and experiences and good strategies, growth and development are possible. This is in stark contrast to a fixed mindset, which believes that morality, talent, intelligence, and creativity are fixed. You either have it or you don't. You're either a good person or a bad person. Hmm. That's not quite right. But how often do we hear or tell ourselves that message? Yikes. That's what I say anyway. Wow, the scriptures are full of so much wisdom to help us live in the stories unfolding in our lives today. Pray for me. I'm praying for you. My prayer is this, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What is this fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. See you tomorrow.